Thank you for listening to the Encounter Church Podcast. For more information, go to www.encounterccb.org. Amen. Thank you, Glenn and team. That, my grandpa was the pastor of our church till I was six years old. We used to sing that a lot, that holy, holy, holy hymn, but never with electric guitar, so I kind of like the updated version uh, pretty good. So thanks. And it ends with God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And so I'm going to be speaking about the Trinity this morning as one of the most practical doctrines in the Christian faith. But first I'd like to read from the scripture. I'm going to be reading John 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14. And then John 14, 15 to 18. And then I'm going to recite the Apostles' Creed. So here's what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Then John 14, 15 to 18, Jesus speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Now listen, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but he's saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, I will be coming to you. And then I'd like to share the Apostles' Creed because it's Trinitarian in structure. And so if you know it, say it with me. If not, just listen carefully. This is what it says. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. So the title of my message is, What's the Big Deal About the Trinity? It's so confusing. And uh, just as way of introductions, many, if not most Christians, believe in the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They believe it because the Bible teaches it, but they have a difficult time understanding it, and understandably so. But when you think about it, uh, when we think about God at all, it's impossible for us to comprehend who God really is. Think about God as being eternal. He has no beginning and no ending. He's all-powerful. He's present everywhere. We don't know anything else in all of creation like that. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the teaching about his essential nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is difficult to get our mental arms around. But I want to talk about that this morning. And the first thing I want to say is this. 
The Trinity is one of the most practical doctrines of Christianity. So I said many people struggle with it because they don't think it applies to daily Christian living, but it does. Think about it like this. Movies and TV uh, shows are, are, are videoed on sets. And so the drama takes place on a set that is constructed. The Trinity is like the set where the drama of redemption takes place. And so the Trinity touches everything we believe. And I'm saying it's the most practical doctrine of Christianity. So think about the common things that we say. First of all, Jesus loves you. What difference would it make if I were to tell you that Gandhi loves you? He's dead and gone. What difference does it make? Or President Trump loves you. Or Nancy Pelosi loves you. It means nothing because these people are distant and far away. They don't even know you. But it makes sense to say that Jesus loves you because he is equal with God. And if he's not, he's dead and gone. It means nothing. But because he is equal with God, it matters to say that Jesus loves you. He knows you by name. Here's another one. Jesus died for you. If he wasn't God, he was just one more victim of Roman crucifixion. Just one Jew among many who were crucified by the Romans. But because he is God, his death is the payment for sins. God judged our sins in him, and because he was both human and God, he could pay the price for our salvation. And then I asked the question, well, how are we saved? Well, I just talked about that. We are saved by Jesus' substitutionary death for us on the cross and his resurrection. And again, what if I were to say, you know, Gandhi died for you. It's meaningless. He's dead and gone, and he's not coming back. But to say Jesus loves you means something because he is equal with God. Because he was fully human and fully divine, he could pay the price for our sins. Here's another one. Uh, we have Jesus in our heart. Actually, Jesus lives in our bodies, not in our heart, but you know what I mean. How could Jesus possibly live in your heart unless the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one? Jesus lives in your heart through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. His body isn't in your heart. He has a physical body, resurrected body still today, but he lives inside your physical body through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And here's one final, final thought. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, how could that possibly be? Jesus has a physical body. He can only be in one place at one time. But because he is one with the Holy Spirit and both are equally God, Jesus can be present with his people worldwide, wherever they are, because the Spirit is what we call omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So where you are gathered in your living room or wherever you are today, if there's more than one of you, or even if there's only one of you, Jesus is with you through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So it's one of the most practical doctrines of Christianity. It touches everything we believe. The next thing I want to talk about is what the Trinity is and is not. First of all, I want to talk about what it is not. 
The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity does not teach that there are three gods who are equally God or that there are three beings who are equally God. That would be polytheism, many gods. It doesn't teach that. It teaches that there is one being who exists and lives eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the one true God united together. Another thing that it does not teach is something like this. It doesn't teach that, you know, like in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as Father. And then in the life of Jesus, God revealed himself as the Son. And then after Pentecost, God reveals himself as the Holy Spirit. That was an early Christian heresy called modalism. In other words, God reveals himself in three ways or three modes, but he's really only one person. That's false teaching. God is three persons and one God. So the Trinitarian doctrine is something like this. The one true God lives eternally as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are essentially united yet distinct persons, and they together are the one true God. So God is one God in three persons. And he's lived that way for eternity. So this is what that means. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about all three persons of the Trinity. Whatever you can say about the Father, you can say about the Son. And whatever you can say about the Son, you can say about the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to get a little bit nerdy on you and share some words from the, what's called the Athanasian Creed which was written either in the 4th or 5th centuries after Christ. And it was an effort to, to describe or explain what the Trinity means. And so here's what it says. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another distinct person. And the person of the Holy Spirit is still another distinct person. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Then it goes on to say, what quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. So, for example, the Father is uncreated. Nobody created God the Father. The Son is uncreated. He's existed and lived forever in eternity past, in the present, and into eternity future. And the Holy Spirit also is uncreated. Then it goes on to say, the Father is immeasurable or infinite. The Son is immeasurable or infinite. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable or infinite. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings, but one eternal being, that's God. So whenever we think as Christians about God, we think of God the Father as a distinct person, God the Son as a distinct person, and God the Holy Spirit as a distinct person. These three distinct persons make up the one true God. The next point I'd like to make is that the Trinity is the best way to make sense of the life of Jesus. Some cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the Trinity is false doctrine because the word Trinity is not in the Bible. I've had Mormons tell me this also. And so I'd like to say this to that. 
The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the ideas that led up to the word clearly are. The word Trinity was coined in the second century AD by Theophilus of Antioch. And so he, he simply made up a word to describe what the Bible has to say about God as revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. And so here's the thing. Jesus healed the sick. He forgave sins. Can you forgive sins? Can I forgive sins? No, only God can forgive sins. He, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. And he said in words that he was equal with God. And we're going to show that. So I want to show you uh, several passages that talk about what we call the deity of Jesus, where Jesus reveals that he is equal with God. The first one is found in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. Here's the backstory to that. Four men had a friend who was paralyzed. They wanted to bring him to Jesus. When they got to the house where Jesus was, it was so crowded they couldn't get in. So they got up on the roof. I wouldn't advise you to do this. Dug a hole in the roof and lowered him down on a stretcher in front of Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, what do you expect the man expected Jesus to say? He expected Jesus to say, rise and walk. But here's what Jesus actually said. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? And they were asking the right question. Who can forgive sins but God alone, only God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all. Now here's what Jesus was demonstrating. The reason that uh, John says the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word made flesh was made flesh is this, that whatever Jesus said, no matter how outrageous it might seem, it happened. So when he said to the paralyzed man, get up and walk, he got up and walked. When he said to blind people, receive your sight, they began to see for the first time in their life. When he said to deaf people, let your ears be opened, they could suddenly hear. And whatever he said happened. And that is true only of the word of God. God said in Genesis 1, let there be light. And there was light. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He said, you have seen, he's basically making this case. You have seen that whatever I say happens. Only God's word has that kind of power. So I can just as easily say your sins are forgiven as I can say rise and walk. And so I'm going to tell this man to rise and walk and he will right before your eyes. And I can just as easily say your sins are forgiven and they will be. And I say it, they are forgiven. 
And so Jesus was claiming the right to do what only God can do, that is to forgive sins. Now, people often ask me, and people often say, why didn't Jesus just come right out and say, I am God? Well, I'm going to read to you a passage from John 8 in which he did exactly that in the most outrageous terms conceivable. This is John 8, 51 and through 53 and 56 through 58. Jesus is saying to the Jewish leaders, Truly, truly, I say unto you, if anyone keeps my words, he will not say death, see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will not see death. He will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And then in verse 56, Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now listen carefully. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He could not have said any more clearly or any more outrageously that he was God. And here's what I say, why I say that. The, the title I am is the sacred name of God in the Old Testament. The word Yahweh or Jehovah means the one who is. And so Moses had this conversation with God as God was sending him to the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 to 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Listen carefully. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. So Jesus could not have stated his deity any more outrageously and clearly than he did at that moment. He says, I am. I am God. That's what that means. So he does say it clearly. He did say it clearly both through his words and his actions. In John 10, 10, he says, I and the Father are one. And then the Bible says the Jews took up stones to stone him because they they believed he was committing blasphemy, claiming to be equal with God. The next point I want to make is this. The Trinity didn't begin when Jesus was born. That's our opening passage that I shared uh, at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him, not anything may, was made that was made. And then verse 14 says this, And the Word, who was with God and was God, that Word became flesh and dwelt among him. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus was the, the Son of God, rather, was in a love relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit before the world was ever created, eternally. They have always lived in an eternal love relationship with each other. 
Genesis 1 says that the Holy Spirit... So when God says, uh, let there be light, and there was light, that's the Word of God, which has all power, and Jesus is that Word of God become a human being. But Genesis 1 also says that the Holy Spirit was present at creation and took part in it. He, pre, he, he prepared the raw material of the world and the universe for the Word of God. This is what Genesis 1, 1 to 2 says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then listen, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So the Spirit of God was preparing the raw material of creation to receive the Word of God. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And so Jesus also in his ministry taught that the Holy Spirit was equal with God. I read this passage earlier. I'm going to read it again. John 14, 15 to 18. This is what Jesus said. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will send you another comforter, another advocate rather, to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor know him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit's going to live inside your body. What difference would that make if the Holy Spirit was not God? What if he was just the wind like the Jehovah's Witnesses say? Meaningless. But then Jesus goes on to say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now he's talking about the presence and, and the power of the Holy Spirit. But he's saying when the Spirit comes, it will be me. I will be coming to you when the Holy Spirit comes. So he's claiming an essential unity with the Holy Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit is also with God. By the way, he says, I will send you another advocate. And the word another, there's two words for another in the Greek language. The, the one word for another can mean something that's different from the first thing. The second word for another can mean something that's like the first thing that you're comparing it to. And that's the word Jesus uses. I'm going to send you another advocate or another helper who is like me. He's going to take my place. He's going to be for you what I am for you. He's going to lead you. He's going to guide you. He's going to empower you. He's going to be with you always. They have felt the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' ministry. And at some point in the future, Jesus says, the Spirit is going to leave, to, to live rather, within you. Now, here's the beautiful thing about the Trinity and how it applies to you, what I've just explained. The Bible says that the person who puts their faith in Jesus is caught up into the eternal love relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love you just as much as they love each other. Now, I know I share this passage a lot, but, uh, and Sandy says, my wife says, every passage in the Bible is your favorite passage. 
and I'm well. Yeah, it's the word of God. But, but here's one of the, this one is toward the top 10, let's say. It's John 17, 22 through 23 and 26. This is what Jesus says. This is his, his final prayer the night before he was crucified. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. That means if you're a believer in Jesus, you are caught up into the eternal love relationship of the Trinity and you are loved as much as the Father loves the Son, as much as the Son loves the Spirit, and as much as the Spirit loves the Father. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. The, the Father and Jesus are one and the Spirit is one with them. So when the Spirit comes and lives within us, God comes and lives within us. That they may become perfectly one for two reasons. Number one, so that the world may know that you sent me, so that they may know I'm not just another religious teacher or even another prophet, not even the greatest prophet, but sent by you as your son, that the world may know that you have sent me and that you love them even as you love me. That was revolutionary in my life. I'd read it a million times, hyperbole, but one day I read it and I just felt a supernatural change come over my heart. It changed my whole perspective on everything. That God loved me and you as much as he loves Jesus. Then in verse 26, he says something similar. I made known to your name to them, and I will continue to make it known to them. Then listen, so that the love with which you have loved me, the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And so how important is the Trinity the Trinity is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. It says that the follower of Jesus is loved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as much as the Father loves the Son, as much as God loves Jesus. I used to ask people, who do you think God loves more, you or Jesus? And it was just a rhetorical question until this passage really sunk in, and the answer is equal, equal. Stow that away in your heart. That's how much God loves you. The next point I want to make, this is my second to the last one, the Trinity is necessary for salvation. If Jesus is not equal with God, then he cannot save you. The scribes were right to say that only God can forgive sin. It's also true that only God can atone for sin. In other words, only God can pay the death penalty for sin that you and I deserve. Only God can do that. Why is it that Jesus' death and resurrection and only his death brings forgiveness of sins? So again, suppose I were to say, Gandhi died for you. Martin Luther King died for you. It would have no meaning. It has meaning for us because Jesus was equal with God. When I was at uh, Cal State Long Beach, I had a friend who was raised, he grew up in Iran, he was raised Muslim, 
And then he went to the University of Paris where he became an officially registered communist and atheist. And so we became really good friends. He was a really great guy, but you can imagine we had some, you know, face-to-face -face debates about God and not God and so on. But he said to me one time, he said, what's the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? A lot of Jews died on crosses. And I said, yes, Mahdi, but only one of them was the Son of God. That's the difference. And so if Jesus was not God, he's just another victim of crucifixion. And Christians are famous for saying, Jesus died for you. The only reason, like I've said before, this has meaning is that Jesus is God. If he isn't, it has no meaning. So here, this one is, I swear, my, my most favorite passage in the whole Bible. This is number one, Romans 5, verse 8 in the NIV. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The point being, if God loved you that much before you loved him, how much more sure can you be that he loves you now that you are a follower of Jesus? And that only makes sense if Jesus was equal with God. Because he was equal with God, he took our sin upon himself. He took God's judgment for sin upon himself. And by faith, we are forgiven, justified, and adopted by God into the love relationship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And let me say this. Whenever a religion demotes Jesus from his position as being equal with God, they cannot have assurance of salvation. I know this by experience. Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, over the years, I've talked to many of them, and I've asked them, are you sure that you're saved? And they'll say, well, no, I can't be. I've asked the same questions of Mormons. The Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was the first created being, but not equal with God. The LDS, the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, teaches that Jesus is one of many gods and that we all become gods. And I've asked them, I've asked the missionaries that come to my door, are you sure that you're saved? And they say, no, I'm not. Same thing with Islam. Islam says that Jesus was the second greatest prophet. But no Muslim can be sure of their salvation. In fact, the Quran even says that. No one can feel secure from God's judgment. And so it's necessary for salvation. The only reason you and I can be sure that we are saved is because God himself did it. And he is the one, when he justifies you, pronounces you not, well, doesn't pronounce you not guilty because we are guilty. He pronounces you righteous in his sight. And now here's my last point, and this is a very important one too. The triune nature of God means that we have dignity as individual persons who are created for relationships and for a purpose. We are created in the image of God according to Genesis 1, 26 to 27. And listen carefully to this. Then God said, let us, let us. He didn't say, I'm going to make man in my own image. He said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So there's a hint of Trinity, of the Trinity, in the very first chapter of the Bible. And the reality of the Trinity tells us what this means for our lives. God lives eternally as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of the persons has a distinct role to play in the drama of salvation. They all love each other eternally, but the Father sent the Son. The Son obeyed the Father and bought our salvation. The Son sent the Holy Spirit, who is the presence of Jesus in our life now that he's ascended to heaven. So each person of the Trinity has a unique identity as God and a distinctive role to play in our salvation. Now listen carefully. This means that every single human being has dignity and value and worth as a unique, distinct, individual person. Now think about that. The Earth's population right now is about 7.8 billion. And let me tell you, it's difficult to comprehend what a billion is. But the doctrine of the Trinity says that you are a distinct, individual, unique person created in the likeness of God, that you have a role to play in the history of the world and that your life matters. Each member of the Trinity works out a distinctive purpose in the creation of the universe and human salvation. That's what this, what this means is this. Your life isn't random, like the Darwinists say. It didn't happen just by chance. It was planned out by God, and your life has a purpose. It matters, and it can, make, uh, it can have eternal implications on the lives of other people. And so here's what I would urge you to do. Ask the Father in the name of Jesus to show you by the Holy Spirit what your purpose is in this life. If you haven't done that already, make that part of your daily prayer. The triune nature of God says that you matter as an individual person. I want to leave you with a quote by, by Nancy Piercy. This is what she writes. The Trinity implies the dignity of the individual self. Jesus as each person within the Trinity is distinct and plays a unique role in the drama of salvation, so each individual person has a unique identity and purpose in the history of the world. And so I want to close it with that and with the, with the words of the, the hymn, Holy, 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 that we sang. God is essentially three persons. God, that we, the God we worship is God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, I pray that this difficult subject has had meaning to people and that we would know that because you are triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equally God, yet distinct persons, that we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, 
that he is equal with Father and Son in glory and majesty and power and worthiness to be worshipped, and our bodies are his home. And so I pray for each person who's had uh, the time to listen to this message, that they would understand they are made in your image for relationship and with dignity and for a unique purpose. Help us all, Lord, to understand that our lives matter, matter and help us to seek you for that purpose so that we may truly make a difference in this world. It's possible. We pray this, God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.